What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? What was it like to be on the road with one of the hardest working bands of the late 1970s and early 80s? That's a question I put to four of the men who were there as XTC travelled the world. Hello again. My name is Mark Fisher, and in this episode of What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, we return to the XTC convention 2022 in Swindon, where on the Saturday afternoon, I had the very great pleasure of talking to four veterans of the band's touring years. The original plan had been to interview Alan Jones, the melody maker, journalist and author of Can't Stand Up for Falling Down, as well as Pete Dewhurst and Steve Warren, two of XTC's roadies. But at the very last minute, thanks to the inspired intervention of Mike Smith, one of the convention organisers, as well as some judicious texting by Pete Dewhurst, we were joined as well at the very last minute by XTC drummer Terry Chambers himself. And as you'll see, he was on scintillating form. As ever, a massive thank you to the supporters on Patreon who keep the XTC podcast going. I really couldn't do it without you. If you'd like to join them, just go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher and decide whether you'd like to be a pink thing, a humble daisy or a knight in shining karma. And if it's the latter, I'll read out your name at the end of each episode. If you haven't bought your copy of What Do You Call That Noise an XDC Discovery book, well, now would be a very good time to pop along to xdclimelight.com to do so. Okay, so I'll hand over to Steve Manning, who will hand back over to me for some XDC road stories. What do you call that noise? You do not want to miss this because we've got a special treat for you today. Uh, Mark Fisher, on the road, is going to be interviewing... Three fantastic people connected with XCC. We have Alan Jones, uh, editor of Melody Maker and Uncut, and author of many publications. We also have Pete Dewhurst, who is the drum technician for our third special guest, the one and only Terry Chambers! The old saying is that what takes place on the road stays on the road. But, they obviously uh, did. Not today. They obviously didn't expect me. As we've just heard, we've got three fantastic people who are all hanging out with each other on the road uh, back in the late well, 70s. And when we were a band of gypsies. <laughs> we're a band of gypsies. On my far left, Pete Dewhurst is, as uh, yeah. just said, drum technician and joined XDC on the road from about 1978. Terry Chambers needs no introduction. He was behind that drum kit. And uh, next to me, Alan Jones, who was the, uh, I'm going to call you a boy reporter, starting the age of 21, writing for Melody Maker, and uh, later became the founder editor of Uncut Magazine. He um, not long ago brought this book out called 
Can't Stand Up for Falling Down, which is a... An Elvis Costello fan- book. An Elvis Costello book. Sorry, you're wearing Elvis Costello book. You're wearing Elvis Costello, aren't you? No, well... No. Um, if and, only. And, uh, but it uh, does actually include several things about Elvis Costello. It's a fantastic compilation of his reminiscences of being on the road at a very, very exciting time for music and for music journalism. And I well recommend you read it. And it also includes his time uh, with XTC. I think was uh, there are three journeys that I've come across that you might be able to tell us more, um, Alan, about uh, your, your trips. But there, there was one, I think the very first one, the first time, Terry, you even went to America was 1978. And Alan was with you then to New York at the invitation of uh, the Talking Heads. Then there was a trip involving Houston in 1980, and actually before that, to, all the way to Australia in 1979. So um, that's a good gig if you can get it as a journalist, yeah, isn't it? I'll tell you, what, um, he, did, he did all right. <laughs> and you were just telling me about the massive, massive workload that you had back in those days. I mean, that was you were getting all the way off to, to Sydney or whatever, but you were also having to do everything else for Melody Maker um, at the same time. What, what, what was the sort of freneticness like as a journalist back in those days? Well. It was extraordinary for me because I, I had no journalistic experience at all when I joined Melody Maker, so I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. But the, the first weeks, it was just like being you know, swept away. You were expected to do maybe four or five interviews, features a week, uh, plus album reviews, uh, live reviews, and then on Mondays you had to keep the day free to write up news stories, really boring part of the job. Uh, writing tour dates for kind of Argent and Camel and all the kind of prog bands that I hated at the time. Um, and it was a little while before I got set on the road with bands, maybe four or five months before they would let me out of the office and be confident that I would actually come back. Uh, and the first time on the road with the band was Roxy Music, so that was pretty exciting. Yeah. And then in uh, December 78, I'm out with XTC. Uh, I'd been to see them a few times. The head of press at Virgin was a, a guy called Al Clark, and I was very friendly with him. Uh, and he'd been at Virgin since the start. Uh, so he'd been used to working with people like Gong, Hatfield and the North, Faust, all the kind of prog rock bands, Hatfield and the North, uh, Slap Happy. So suddenly in 77, when Richard Branson started you know, signing punk bands, and new wave bands, Al was suddenly, you know, confronted with having to work with the Sex Pistols at the time of, you know, God Save the Queen and the boat <laughs> trip and stuff like that. And he used to invite me out to gigs and we used to meet socially and uh, he took me a couple of times, I think probably to the, the Nashville uh, and to see XTC. Uh, so I, you know, I was familiar with them and I liked them. And then the opportunity came up to go to New York because, as you say, Talking Heads were playing um, a New Year's Eve show at the Beacon Theatre in New York. It must have been the biggest New York show to date at the time. And David Byrne uh, had invited XTC out to, to open for them. I think you toured the previous year with them. Yeah. I'm not used to using one these things. Yeah, we did a European thing with them that was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. Didn't you come up with the name of the second album, the second Talking Heads album? Or is that a kind of... I don't even bit? know what it was. Uh, more songs about building Oh, definitely not. No, no. That, that's oh, okay. got David Byrne all that, under it. That was, oh, that was Andy. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Uh, Andy claims that he came up with the idea, but the, there are alternative stories. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Alternative <laughs> story for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyway, the, the, the first time I met Terry and uh, the band was at Heathrow, uh, mm-hmm. the morning that we flew out uh, to New York. And as I remember, the flight was delayed. It was an Air India flight. Uh, and, what, to uh, Europe? This <laughs> 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 to New York. Oh, right. Well, here in India, New York, yeah. And, and, and you have a fantastic line in that uh, because they were waiting around so long in the, for, for the plane to take off and uh, Andy Partridge, you know, never really having flown very much before, said that he had lounge lag. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we had a like, four or five hour delay, uh-huh. which was perfect because I, I remember Al Clark, who came with us because he liked to travel with Ecstasy, of, of, of all the, the, the kind of new wave bands that Virgin had signed. I think he, 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 spent, uh, he had a special affinity with Ecstasy. He really, really liked them. Uh, so all the trips I did with them, Al came along as well, uh, which wasn't unusual. Um, but I knew Al didn't like being on the road. He wasn't a very sort of rock and roll type, was he? Yeah, absolutely not. He was, he was a lounge lizard as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he used to come along with us. And I remember um, uh, when they um, announced the flight was going to be de- delayed for some considerable time, Al said he'd go and sort something out. And he came back with the uh, Air India luncheon vouchers. He said, we can all go for a carry. And Andy went... It's 8.30 in the fucking morning. Harry. <laughs> <laughs> and Terry said, oh, what we want is beer. <laughs> so we, we went straight to, to the, 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 the bar. And over the next, what, four hours, I, I learned a lot about Swindon. <laughs> I don't know if this will offend anybody, but um, the Peniel Mutants figured very largely in Andy's conversation and Terry's conversation. So I felt like I knew all about Swindon you know, before we even got on the plane. But it was a great way to meet the band. Because, uh, you know, we, we hadn't known each other before. It's always strange as a journalist, and I'm sure for the band, when you just parachuted in. You will pick up uh, on that question, Terry, for the band. You're busy being a band. You're going to America for the first time. You want to get on. You want to concentrate. You, well, either you want to drink beer or you want to, to do the gigs. And you've got some... You know, twenty-one-year-old kid or whatever you were, twenty-four-year-old kid hanging around was was. Would, but it sounds from 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 reading what Alan says that you the two of you hit it off really well. I think um, Alan went there on the assumption that Doctor Feelgood were playing. <laughs> and I think I think because uh, that's one of his favourite bands, and we did get to hang out with those guys there on a number of occasions. Surprisingly, he wasn't disappointed that um, that we were actually the band that was going to be playing with the Torbjorn Heads and not Dr. Feelgood. And, um, you know, I think um, some of us in the band anyway had similar sort of um, um, after-night enjoyment, so to speak, and um, which suited Mr. Jones to a T. So uh, he wasn't disappointed in the the after-gig situation, put it that way. Not the gigs. Okay. <laughs> and Pete, I haven't drawn, brought you into the conversation yet. You t- tell us the story about how you got involved with with XDC. I worked with Penetration and the Invisible Girls, and I was in the middle of you know, doing nothing. And I got a phone call saying that they needed somebody. So I was straight down to Nottingham University, I think it was, <laughs> straight in at the deep end. And Ian Reid, I remember coming up to me and telling me what I needed to do. You know who Ian Reid is, I guess. Apart from everything I needed to do on stage. Everything I needed to do on stage, I was supposed to collect the band's uh, stage clothes uh, straight after the gig, get them laundered and returned for the next gig. That never happened. And Andy came up and said those things and I said, 
I said, I've got a lot on here. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've got all this to do and driving and loading and setting up. And I said, I've got to do all your laundry. He went, oh, don't worry about that. He said, that's, we'll take care of that. So that was a load, <laughs> a, washing, a washing load off my back. <laughs> yeah. uh, and there was never time to wash. <laughs> no, 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 that was where the tour t-shirt came in, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you just came back home with a bag full of records, a load of smelly clothes, and that was about it. Memories. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you were officially... Empty pockets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, apart from doing laundry, you were officially a drum tech, is that right? <laughs> well, uh, I was definitely... Anything. No. I, I, I had any qualifications, I just worked with my friends who were penetration and... Mm-hmm then came along and worked with these and I like to think we were friends and you know that nobody ever kind of sort of said oh my my guitar isn't perfect uh, my drum yeah. hasn't been tightened enough well you probably said that behind my back yeah no we weren't um no they weren't they, they weren't they weren't <laughs> slow drivers it was good it was just just a good time wasn't it yeah I just wish you could remember some of it <laughs> <laughs> but for, for, for terry it must have been important for you to get have someone you could get on with um because day in day out you've got this guy oh i don't know. like him <laughs> 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 you don't say have to like him <laughs> 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 no, never technically i still hold this laundry issue against you in some countries we'd be technically married because i have a drum symbol that says to my ever faithful companion in a lot of countries that would be you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> is your wife in the audience here? Yeah, there she is. So uh, that puts uh, a, a, a line under it. that anyway, doesn't it? Fact, uh, I never sure shared a room with Pete, but he did. Yes. I started off sharing with Barry Andrews. That was a bit Let of me a... Come over. I'll do the Michael Parkinson bit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, on, on the earlier days, I would, I would share with Barry Andrews, and uh, I could tell some of the very, very strange stories of Barry and uh, in, in very um, interesting modes on tour. But I, won't, I can't um, elucidate any more on that because it's a bit too, a bit too risky. <laughs> That's, that's it, okay, fair. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll just he's he's heavily sedated as well. The first time he's been on stage in how long? But Pete, one of the uh, amazing, th- well, the weird things really about XTC is that because there's a lot of people here who got into XTC a long time after they stopped touring, and quite often I come across people saying, oh, XTC were a band that didn't tour. You can... <laughs> prove the lie to that, can't you? Because they were not just um, a band that played live. They played live a hell of a lot. It's a huge amount. Yeah, I mean, you must have been so busy. I'll just check my notes. Yeah, look at your notes. Thanks to Wendy for laminating all of these. And so this this is a rough, roughly the XCC US tour in 1980. 50 shows in 65 days, 11,571 miles. With We did have a couple of days off at the end of the tour in New York, which we thought was going to be, you know, do a bit of shopping, have a little bit of a rest, and then they managed to squeeze two extra gigs in. <laughs> oh, three, three, sorry. Three extra gigs in. And then, I don't know if you remember, at the end of that, well, at the, uh, that would have been up to March, but at the end of that year, we got the Vasco da Gama Touring Award from the NME for the you know, the biggest number of dates on the tour, and then, do you remember what Ian got you for a Christmas present? 
I don't know, a tour somewhere else, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you got a ceramic, I think it was a VW Beetle or something, that was a, that had a bulb inside, it sounded like a table lamp. That looked like it had been squashed when it had been made, you got one each. Do you remember? <laughs> Um, no. <laughs> 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 that was Christmas present that went in the bin, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. But, um, yeah, he he. Um, he was generous. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and that that looks like a crazy amount of touring to me now. Did it feel? Did you just accept it at the time? Yeah, it was just that's what. That's what that was a tour that you know you couldn't we weren't in a position to say well hang on a minute this is health and safety and there's one thing or another you just that was what we did I mean we were talking earlier about that drive from Houston to San Diego yeah we had to go from Houston to San Diego and um, we had two days to do the the drive so we set off from Houston and we got I think it was about twelve hours driving the first day. And Pete was driving, and I was on the left-hand side, and I was on the right-hand side. I had my arm out the window all the drive, and so this part of me was totally sunburned. <laughs> I looked like a weird white and red person for a <laughs> <laughs> we stopped over like, in Yuma, Arizona, and uh, we went through all the Death Valley and that sort of stuff. And we stopped on Yuma, and it was like uh, all this blind weed was going, flowing down the road in the morning. And we got yeah, and we right. got to San Diego and we played like a, uh, a, a, a sort of little club, wasn't it, in San Diego? Yeah. But before we got there, we we did a tour. On a part of the tour when we went down to America, we we stayed in Austin, Texas, the Armadillo World Headquarters, <laughs> a very very famous place where um, on the cover of the Clash album, where was smashing the guitar. That's the Armadillo World Headquarters, like you know. And we played there and. Uh, Everyone had Stetsons on and going yeehaw and that sort of stuff. We were also booked into a place in Norman, Oklahoma. I mean, it was a place um, where we, I think we booked on as a cabaret band from England. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we played this place, we thought, oh, it's a good crowd here, like, about five or six hundred. But not that we know, the Eagles were on headlining in the, in the main stadium and they had sort of 40,000 yeah, and we had sort of a couple of hundred. So, Put, put our sort of I show mean, into perspective. Really. <laughs> sort of yeah. Alan, were you on that tour? Because that that mad like seventy yeah. an hour, several days of seventy hour trips. Yeah, I, I joined the band in um, Houston, mm -hmm. and uh, there was a gig that night that was cancelled. Uh, there were band were had to be the sound or something. Well, uh, well, what the actual story? I'm sorry to butt in. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's so there's already we got to the Houston gig and we were used to like a you know a big rig with the microphones and amplifiers and the mixing desk. The Houston gig had three microphones on on a with a little mixer and it had one light switch for the lights. You had either on or off. That was the setup. So we said, ah, stop this. So we all went back to the hotel and imbibed in many, many things. So that's why it was cancelled, because it was this no way we could have played in that place. Oh, thanks for that, Steve. No worries. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so anyway, the next morning we, we set off, and I think we drove um, by San Antonio, stopped off at the Alamo for uh, a photo shoot. There was uh, me um, and uh, Adrian Booth, photographer from Melody Maker, and Al came with us. And on that tour, I think Andy and uh, Colin had their wives. They were travelling with us. 
Sorry, was it a really packed band? Because Steve and Paul would have travelled separately. Yeah. I think the, the tour manager was a guy called Paul Bailey. I Paul think. Bailey, budget, yeah. 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 And that was that, that was that, that was the longest drive I've ever done. Uh, I, I, I seem to remember driving for more than twelve hours. It seemed more like fifteen or seventeen. We drove from Houston uh, to San Antonio, and then on right across the, the, the Yuma, Yuma, and El Paso, El Paso, and then San Diego. Then San Diego, where there was. It sounds the, exotic, but uh, it was pretty knackering all around, really. Yeah, oh yeah, Costa. I'm definitely. San I mean, Diego, Houston. Yeah, we had two two days, two travel days for that. But also the the the, the van. Well, I don't know about your van. You might have had a super duper van, but our van had a limiter on it, which now you could probably override it. But then you couldn't, and so we used to have to tailgate big wagons. So you have to get about two foot from the back of the wagon to kind of get a bit of drag on it to pull, to pull you along to try and get you there a little bit quicker. The safest way to travel. <laughs> And, and from your point of view, it's the definition of embedded journalism, isn't it? You couldn't, you know, just couldn't be more immersed in the whole process than that. Oh no! I mean, there were, you know, we, we were packed into mm -hmm. to that van, and you know, you couldn't get out. Uh, we, we, we we stopped in a, a few places. Does this we... does this hanky smell funny to you? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was like. Who's got my stuff? We were crammed in. I think they were right at the back. I remember there was me, Al, and Terry, and in front of us, uh, about three crates of Budweiser or whatever we'd been able to kind of liberate from, you know, local off license. That was just for you. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. We, did you remember driving up into the mountains, uh, Cochise's stronghold? Yeah, I do recall that. Yeah, and I also were wearing um, a Davy Crockett hat. The Alamo, the Alamo. Well, looks, actually looked like a squirrel on your head. It's just, <laughs> just ridiculous. I'm wearing a leather jacket at the point. I think I don't know whether anybody's seen that photograph, but it's not a look. <laughs> say that. The squirrel against... on your head. It looked like someone out of that Chevy Chase Christmas movie. <laughs> you decided against having a piss against the Alamo, though. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And Terry, the range of, as Alan describes it, the range of different venues you played. One, um, as Steve has just been describing, yeah. where, the, where, where the lights went off if you put the sound up, or the vice versa, um, that had to be cancelled altogether. Others, where you've got people expecting a cabaret band. Others, where it'd be CBGBs and it'd be like, um, you know, you'd be the hottest young things there. I mean, what, what was your... Did you just did you give it all every time you played a gig, or did you respond? Absolutely, to the it doesn't matter how many people turn up. It's uh, it's great when it's a packed house and everything. But our philosophy is the good people that have decided to come here still deserve a show. I mean, I, I recall playing a couple of shows with Blondie. Blondie had a number one or number two single in the charts at the time, and we played a couple of gigs with them. One was Blackpool for some God knows reason, and the other was Coventry, and I think they did the London show um, with somebody else or whatever, but we did those two shows, and um, the Blackpool one in particular, it was only 150 people turned up, and it was due to bad advertising and so on and so forth, so it's it's very disappointing, but we went on and said it's, it's their hard-earned money, the 150 people that are there, it's not those that are there, that are disappointed, it's those that are not there. And we used to just sort of play there, sort of like 
gather round. It, it was the Lyceum or something like that, I think, uh, in uh, Blackpool with the Locarno, one of those places. And they're quite cavernous places, so if you only get 150 people in there, um, I mean, Blondie were really pretty pissed off with it, to be quite honest. But um, from our point of view, it's 150 people that we hadn't played to before, and that's the way we treated it. Alan, you've had that experience of seeing the, the band play one night in front of a, uh, you know, maybe a dodgy sound system and a, an athletic audience, and then the next night they have all the conditions on their side. There is a, 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 a the, the band can still give it their all, but sometimes it just clicks in a way that that that, um, that is better than other times when it when the odds are against them. I think of all the XTC shows that I, I saw, and there were some of them in front of kind of different audiences, and in Caracas, uh, they played to an audience basically a riot place with machetes. Um, so they were a hard crowd to win over. Uh, but I must say, that, you know, as Terry says, and it's typical, I think, of, of most bands, you know, if they've got any respect for, for the audience, it could be 50,000 people, or it could be five or six. Mm. Most bands just turn it on. They, they can't seem to stop themselves. I mean, the, I did a lot of tours with the Pretenders, and the best single gig I ever saw them play was in Blackburn Town Hall, and I think there were about 25 people there, and they weren't going to go on stage at first. I mean, they would they, they'd hit a point where they thought, is it really worth us going on? And Chrissy just said, we're in a fucking rock and roll band, they're a fucking rock and roll audience, let's go on and play some fucking rock and roll. <laughs> and they just went out there and they blasted it. They were brilliant that night. So I think most groups just... If there's a fan there, it could be one person and his dog. But if, if it's a fan, most groups respond to it. Yeah, and I suppose there's that idea of, you know, how, how do you play badly, you know, what does that mean? Do, do you just don't well, bother? You, yeah, do well, you know, I don't know, did you ever go on stage and think, well, can't be really bothered? No. Well, I'll let you answer that. No, no, no. It was always on form when you, if he hit it, it stayed hit. <laughs> yeah, we did our um, we we did our best when we were there. I mean, there's all manner of reasons why one gig is possibly better than another. A lot of it's to do with sound, the the, the uh, equipment the, being in the right place. Yeah, you know, there's all a manner of excuses that a, a band can use to say, "Oh, that was a crap gig because of this, that, and the other." But at the end of the day, you know, the audience doesn't really understand what the difficulties that, that sometimes you, you can come up against up there because if you can't hear the vocals you don't know where you are in the song and um, I noticed that our monitor guy is over the back there from last night I noticed him there uh, taking down, a few tips so I've got to be careful what I say <laughs> but um, yeah Will's over there that took care of us last night with uh, his uh, professional expertise it can be difficult up there um, if things are not going according to plan but um that, that, that's what takes place when you're in a, a, a fairly big band. If you're just in a band playing in, say, a room this size there, and you're, you know, a, a three-piece jazz quartet, then you're in total control of what what you're doing and playing. But um, you know, when you get in the bigger arena there, when you're employing amplification and and uh, all these other things that can, it just the the difficulties can escalate. We all want to see Terry's new three-piece jazz quartet now. <laughs>
Yeah. Roger yeah. <laughs> interjects on the show must go on. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't need one of these. Listen to his voice. <laughs> you all know Rick Wakeman. Yeah. Well, Rick Wakeman played in Cheltenham Town Hall a few years ago, and he, you know, it's all. He thought it was going to be all sold out. No, ten people turned up to the oh gig. My God. So he said, oh, well, "Okay, all of you come up on stage." So he got some chairs, and they sat up on the stage. And he, the show went on, just the ten people and Rick Wakeman playing to the organ. Oh, so, so, that's so the show must go on. Yeah. Must have started. Rick Wakeman, just, eh? Just going back to that Caracas thing, the, the police with the machetes, the, the crowd actually started a fire. It was in like a that's big right. top, wasn't it, or something? Yeah, yeah. It was in Sorterine. Yeah, yeah, big, big dome. Yeah. Uh, the, the set of fire pretty close to where all the... Cables went back to the yeah, sand desk, and, this, yeah. and then, so they came out with the machetes and started slapping people with the machetes. That's <laughs> right, they were slapping them. Yeah. 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 yeah, I just remember them tearing into the building in, in all these big yeah. police stands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was Jules Holland and John Jett were on that thing. As well. yeah. uh, Jules Holland was on it. Yeah, Jules yeah, the, was millionaires. and the millionaires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was a bit. Of an I think we were just the sideshow there. I think they were filming a movie there. To be honest, because. Could you imagine that sort of happening at a gig? I mean, we were just sort of like a bit of a sideshow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Pete, uh, you've described the ridiculous amount of, of, of gigging that you did and the long hours and, you know, maybe some gigs going better than other gigs and so on. Uh, was it a job for you or was it, was it something more than that? Was it, uh, in particular with XDC? It got him off the dole. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> got me off the dole. Yeah. Well, not really. I'd... Been no, you're probably enough. still on it at the same time. It's true stuff. I hadn't been off. I hadn't been at that time. You had to be off. You had to be able to work for so long before you could sign. So I don't think I'd been off long enough. Never <laughs> but no, the, no, I mean it was it was good. I mean it was look, looking back on it, we were bloody knackered. But I mean, sort of looking back on it now, it was good fun. But at the time, we were bloody knackered most of the time. It was like I said, we used to get home and people at the Wendy would say. You know, oh, you've been to so and so, you've been to this one. Mother in law and mum, dad used to say, Oh, what was so and so like? I was like, don't know. We drove in, <laughs> unloaded the gear, set it up, did the sound check, loaded it back in the van, and drove off again. <laughs> dark when you get there, dark when you get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, well, I mean, we say in hindsight, it was brilliant, it was good fun, but at the time, we'd probably curse him, yeah. And would you have done it for any band, or was there something about that particular combination? No, I'd been an XTC fan because we used to plunder Virgin's um, record. Um, <laughs> yeah, you remember that. Yeah, yeah. You used to go in the record room with Virgin and you could just help yourself. And when we used to go down with with penetration when they were having meetings and so on and so forth, me and the other guy used to go and just used to go through and pick out what we thought was good and the XTC albums were there. So I got into them that way, sorry. Didn't pay for it. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, yeah, I like the music. I mean, whether it would have made a difference, I don't really know, because at the time I just, I, I needed some work at the time, so I would have probably gone out with any old Tom, Dick and Harry, but luckily it was in there. Actually, you were getting better paid than we were. Uh, well, yeah, probably were, yeah. <laughs> Except for that, that we were talking about this, the Canadian leg of the tour. And I can't remember, it was Calgary and Edmonton. That's right, yeah, yeah. Vancouver. And we, Vancouver, and we ended up coming back. We, we played a gig that was sold out, and then we went off the island, I think, and then we had to come back for some reason. And the guy said, look, I could sell this out again. So he advertised it again, and I think you've got most of the door on that thing. 
Ian Reid got this the book. No, he didn't. He, didn't. he, didn't. he, didn't. he, didn't. he went to Reid. No, he, wouldn't. he didn't know about it. Oh, didn't he? was an extra shirt. Well, is anybody from the Inland <laughs> Revenue in? <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll have to twist Paul Bailey about that. Yeah, but yeah, that was the deal. Bailey got all the money. <laughs> if Reid didn't get it, it would have been the tour manager. It was sort of like a stepping stone down. Yeah, we, maybe a little we were, bit filtered down to the band. <laughs> I, th I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the idea was that you got a little bit more than you would have got otherwise. But we got. I think. Vodka, I think. I, I think Reid's idea was to keep Chambers pissed most of the time, and he wouldn't so know. know what was going on. <laughs> Did it work? Yeah. Well, I didn't get any money, so yeah. <laughs> And Alan, a similar question to you. Uh, you did and continue to write about lots and lots of different bands. This was a band that you happened to hang out with quite a lot, you know, over the, over those that that live period. Was there something? I mean, and you've turned up to an XTC convention. Was there something about XTC that made them uh, stand out for you uh, um, among all the other people that we were writing about, or were they just another band? Uh, another no, there was a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I started writing about. XTC, um, I had a bit more freedom uh, to write about who I liked on Melody Maker. So if I went to them with an idea, and I suspect with you know the first time when we went to New York, Al Clark mentioned that it was happening, and I thought that could be a good story. I was a big fan of XTC, so I loved Talking Heads. It was a trip to New York, New Year's Eve in New York. I took it to the editor, and they said, "Yeah, go." And a year later, it was. Um, to Australia, uh, just after Drums and Wires came out, or around the same time. Um, I wouldn't have kept going on tours with them if I, if I didn't like the music, and I di didn't like them as people, and they were great to get on with. I mean, Terry especially, with <laughs> a lot of fun. Um, and it was always... The times that I went to Australia, you know, it was going to tell you, there were opportunities for good stories and, and, and good stuff to write about in colourful locations. So I was always up for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I was just, just on that fantastic question and answer session that Andy Partridge just did um, for the people here. Um, there was one point when he was describing a goldfish bowl. Now, anybody in the world, apart from Andy Partridge, would just say a goldfish bowl. But Andy described three different types of goldfish bowls, none of which exist in the real world. And and that level of, if, as just, you could hate the music, but if you have that level of... Um, uh, visual detail. It's just a gift for a journalist, isn't it? Absolutely. And one of the things that um, stood out from the, maybe the first few times that I saw at XTC, probably at the Nashville Rooms or uh, maybe the, the Rock Garden, somewhere like that, uh, kept going with Al. And it was a time of, uh, you know, this post-punk and new wave bands. And there were a lot of post-punk bands that I, I, I didn't really like. Wire, uh, Susan the Banshees. I liked M Magazine. Uh, but a lot of those groups at that time, they, they tended to take themselves terribly seriously. And that's always really boring. You know, there's some groups that take themselves so seriously that you can't take them seriously. <laughs> and there was something in the way that, that, I don't know, there was something in the songs or their attitude on stage uh, that suggested that um, XTC you know, didn't take themselves that seriously, which is not to say that they took themselves lightly. Um, but there was some kind of subversive kind of humour in there that, you know, 
made them more attractive to write about. And it, as it happened, it turned out, my instinct turned out to be true, because they were very funny, they were very self-deprecating. Um, they didn't have a kind of big moody image, like, you know, the Banshees or you know, groups like that. Um, it was just always a pleasure to go, you know, I knew if I was going to go away with them for a week, I was going to have a really, really good time, and the music was going to be really good. And you were, you know, hanging out with people that you like. That, that's making Terry grin. Why are you yeah, grinning, Terry? I, I don't think anybody took a band from Swindon seriously. <laughs> well, that's, that, that, that's still. <laughs> but it was but, like, we a bit of well, a. Well, I mean, about you taking yourselves overly well, seriously. But was there a sense, Terry, of like that? I imagine many, perhaps even all bands, have of, of you against the world. So you, you being different to the other bands, that, you know, you were you were this sort of tight new unit that was. Uh, different from from the, your your rivals, I think um, because we couldn't get any gigs in Swindon anyway, there was hardly very few places to, to to play, and we were pretty keen on sort of or Andy was anyway about doing his own original material. The only outlet really was to go to London, um, and it is that we were out of towners. We weren't really tangled up with the same type of thing there because. In London at that particular time when we were sort of going around, which was from the mid-70s, um, we did actually play the Fulham Palace Grand, I think in 1973 or 74. Not as XTC, but in a in one of the earlier bands, Helium Kids or Star Park. Um, and we weren't based in London. Um, and what um, seemed to take place there, because it was... Um, uh, such a magnet for musicians, people sort of got there and formed those bands and and those bands would go to many of the other clubs, such as um, bands like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, The Damned, and all those sort of... They would go and see each other and all this type of thing there. And um, it's uh, they would judge the reaction of, of certain types of songs, I guess, uh, by the audience and think, ah, well, this seems to be popular, let's go with that. So they... They, they collectively sort of copied each other to a certain extent, I think. Alan would know more about it than me because having lived, lived in London and, and, and seen many, many gigs, um, I think we were different because we, we didn't get sort of like tangled up with all that type of thing because we weren't actually from London. Mm -hmm. So I think the isolation of actually coming from Swindon was a little bit of a, an advantage for us mm -hmm. in as much that it made us a little bit different from the rest. And, and you sort of couldn't take yourself too seriously because... Well, they, I mean, uh, you know, when it got out that um, well, they can't be Swindon, you know, I mean, hayseeds, you know, that sort of, that type of thing there, bloody swine herders, whatever. Um, I mean, swine town, I mean, that's what the place was called originally. I mean, Pig Hill, you know. Um, so from a, a rock and roll musical aspect, I mean, Swindon's sort of like the Akron of... I mean, Devo came from Akron. I mean, you wouldn't get anything more different different than that at the time. But um, because they didn't come from Los Angeles and New York. So I think to a certain degree, um, there's a freshness about it. Whether you like it or not depends on, on your own personal choice. But um, I think if, 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 you, if, if you develop in a place like Manchester or Birmingham or London, any of the big cities, and you've got the opportunity to go and see these things, there's a diversity there for sure. But I think, um, you know, a fashion trend will sort of tend to get things all very similar. And it's, it's a similar sort of path that these people take. Unless, of course, you're extraordinarily artistic like the likes of Partridge I mean he's he's very individualistic and um, 
he, he's drawn his influences from people there. I mean, he's, he'd be the one to have to tell everybody where they came from, and God knows where they do come from. But um, that makes a band a little bit different from the others, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, there's, there's strengths for bands like The Clash. Joe Strummer was an extraordinary individual. Um, you know, each band sort of has to have some leader, I guess, and Partridge was certainly ours. And, and, and Pete, you, when I'm thinking about the interview that John Leckie did last night, and John Leckie was saying that being with XTC was the equivalent of, 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 of taking mushrooms because his, his, yeah, his yeah. cheek muscles were just permanently uh, grinning because it was such a funny um, time to be to spend time with, with that particular band. Was that your? And that was just the music, and that was just the music. <laughs> um, but was it a, was it a laugh or was it a hard work? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was it was always it was always good fun. I mean, it was hard work and it was good fun, but that that was the payoff. I think that if you if it had been doing hard work and you you know you came back and there were a bunch of miserable. The band I'm in at the moment reduces people to tears. I'm yeah. not sure whether that's a good thing either. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so yeah, I mean that that took the edge off it. Obviously, that that you were enjoying, you, you got on with everybody in the band. I mean, we, I can't remember. We didn't. We re, I was just trying to think where we rehearsed in the old town somewhere. I can't remember the name of the place. I remember sitting in there, and there was an old piano in one of the rooms. And was that Tudor Studios? What was that Tudor Studios? Yeah, I mean that was good. I, I remember sitting around one night and. I think Andy and Dave, mostly, probably you and Colin doing back and forth, and you don't do that, do you? I don't know. But just sitting around and started trotting out a few Beatles songs and singing along, it was like a bit of a, like a nice little pub atmosphere, you know, with about half a dozen of us in there. Mm. Yeah, it was always, it was always, it was always good fun. And I mean, Andy, like uh, Terry said, he was so funny. He was just some of the things he came out with. We got a Christmas card off him one year when. We opened it and we were, I think we were in bed when we opened it and, and he'd torn up a load of little bits of tissue paper and stuff so when you opened it it would just like <laughs> covered in tissue paper. It's fashionable man. Yeah, yeah, he's a little well ahead of the curve there. And he did some great drawings of Steve which... Yeah, but I mean he, 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 he made you sick really because he was so talented. Turn his hand to anything, you know, he's like drawing, like, and he was funny, he was obviously a talented songwriter, musician, and couldn't drive. <laughs> Everybody's flawed. <laughs> and Alan, again, in your articles of back then, you know, it's, there's big chunks where you just write down verbatim what was said between the band, and it's just, it is just very funny. You, you laugh in those pieces quite a lot, don't you? It's, again, a gift for a journalist. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that you know you want to do as a journalist is to introduce the readers to the personalities in the band and sometimes the best way to do that is just recording the dialogue um, I never used to use a tape recorder on the on the road because it was somehow intrusive you know if somebody in the band saw you switching on the tape recorder every time you walked into a dressing room then they'd get suspicious and then everybody might climb out uh, but if you're just there kind of in the background, but just listening, and not to, not merely to what is being said, but the way it's being said, so you can capture some flavour of the, you know, the, the personalities that you're touring with. 
Um, so it's always good when the group is chatty. You know, there, there isn't a kind of morose bass player sitting in the corner or, you know, the guitarist is, you know, unhappy with his amps or his effects pedals and he's in a strop. So, you know, if, if the group are open and bright and funny uh, and engaged with what they're doing, yes, it is an incredible gift. Um, and what, on the technical level, what did you do? Did you go just sort of try and remember everything and then go and scribble it down afterwards? Um, yes, I mean... Uh, it, you referred earlier to the kind of deadlines that we were under, and uh, I did lots of uh, tour stories. Uh, and you know, you, you'd go away maybe on a, a Monday, you'd get back to London on the Saturday, and by Monday you'd have to have a, a six thousand word cover story written. Uh, so there wasn't time practically to transcribe a tape. You know, the times I did that, you'd spend more time transcribing the tapes than you were actually writing the feature that you were hoping to present and, you know, get printed. Um, so I thought, oh, you know, well, you know that's, that's useless. You just try to remember. And to be honest, in lots of incidents with lots of bands that I was on tour with, it was harder to forget what had happened <laughs> than, than it was, you know. <laughs> it, everything was so vivid. We are still in therapy now. <laughs> But, you know, it, it all just presented itself, and uh, it was hard to forget, you know, as it was happening. I never had any trouble. I'm, fortunately, I found out that I had a, a very good retentive memory, and no matter how much I, I drank or whatever I took, <laughs> I'd still have a, a very clear... I mean, it, it was... Basically, it, it was anticipatory panic, because you knew that you knew at some point you're going to have to sit down in front of a you know, blank piece of paper and start typing all this fucking shit up. And so it just stayed with you, you know. You'd run it through your mind. But I found out if during the tour or a day I sat down and started writing stuff down, that was at a point where you start forgetting. I kind of stored it all in until I just wrote it down. I might make, you know, preliminary notes, like sketch an outline for where the piece was going to begin and end. And they'd just go for it and just let it all come out. Because I just made a joke about embedded journalism, but actually it is sort of like war reporting in the level of detail that you would write, you know, whether it's describing the airport or describing the venue that you get to or the people that they meet. And there's a lot of precise detail that would make me think you were making notes, but that's fascinating that you went. I, sometimes I would retrospectively mm -hmm. um, look up where we played, if, there, if that was possible. It's easier now because mm -hmm. uh, you've got the internet. But I would make notes and I would... Uh, if we were going through a town, I would collect bits of literature. I'd get a local paper, uh, I'd get flyers from the gig, find out about the, uh, the venue if I could, just to add uh, other layers of detail into it. Uh -huh. were, were you quite correct yeah. you quoted, Terry? Well, I think um, I've always had a lot of respect for Alan as a, a writer and that, and I think um, uh, the sign of a good writer is um, they can uh, make fiction almost like fact and uh, some of the facts get a little bit mixed up with the fiction and uh, and if the the facts are pretty lifeless and boring and one thing or another alan's very good at making sure that um, a good story you know even the facts don't get in the way of a, a good story <laughs> uh, moving swiftly on <laughs> um, um, i'm i'm Thinking about that period that, um, that that we're talking about, where the band went from uh, that began that trajectory from from uh, lively 
I'll use the word punky sound uh, to increasingly elaborate stuff. Were you conscious, um, Peter, as, as, as somebody who was so closely watching them night after night after night of, of a band that was progressing, changing, getting better, getting becoming different? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was. I mean, the bands do that. They start evolving. They were trying different things out. There was, like, say, we added keyboards. There was different guitar changes and stuff like that. Was way, way above my head. I mean, I'm just good at passing a guitar to somebody and <laughs> or grabbing a drumstick if one goes flying. Or so yeah, but I mean, they were they were constantly. I mean, sound checks were always like new songs coming along. That always, well, you know what they're sounding like. They're wrong. You know, they just got bad. For, in my opinion, they got better and better, better as the longer it was. And, and obviously, the tip, the, the, we're, we're trying stuff out and sound checks, and maybe in hotel rooms, they'd want a guitar up in the hotel room and working on stuff all the time. So, yeah, they, they uh, yeah. definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'll come to questions in just a second, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask a similar question to you, Alan, which is that you did see the band before you started hanging out with them. And 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 you saw ropier gigs and and better gigs, and you saw you know you 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 were there to hear white music for the first time, and then go uh, to for the first time, uh, and then drums and wires. Did, did, were you conscious of, of of a band maturing and and coming into it, finding its own feet? Oh, very much so. Uh, I remember the first gigs, and it was you know kind of kind of ragged, raw. Quite savage sound at times, you know, crosswise, mechanic dancing. By the time that 1981, I think, around the time we went to to Caracas, the set that XTC had then was a really powerful rock set. I mean, they had so many great songs that they 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 put together. It was a completely different band, you know. They, 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 it weren't. It wasn't so much that they were playing better. They just had a, a much greater sense of what they could achieve, and the sound expanded. It had grown. It, it, it you know, kind of really blossomed, uh, and they were at kind of peak then. Um, but to to allude to the amount of touring that they did, I think they were so badly treated by Virgin. Um, if there was a territory opening. And Virgin, you know, wanted to move their bands in there. It was always XTC. They sent out as these kind of pioneers. You know, Australia, yeah, let's get XTC out to see see what it's like. So they went out there for I don't know. We were there two, three weeks. The uh, first time. I didn't do the Australian tour. That I think I started just after they came. Ah, oh, right. Let's. This is a very rare opportunity to sorry. ask questions of of, of oh, you t- keep it, mate. not just <laughs> Terry <laughs> Chambers, but it's particularly rare to get uh, Terry on the stage. So let's get questions from the audience. Uh, it'd be good to keep in this category, but you might have other questions to ask as well. And no, hands no, mathematics no mathematical and, sh- and solutions or anything of that nature. If, if, if for Christ's sake, that would be good. Uh, okay, so I want to hear more about the Japan tour, Terry. What, last one or the the future J- Japanese things? Well, We're going there in January. Yes, you are. We are. Tell us what about the last one. The last one, well, the last and only one was in 1979. Um, Mr. Jones, were you there? No, no. no I fell down after Australia. Yeah. Yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. I don't know whether anybody's been lucky enough to go to Japan, but uh, it's it's a different world over there. And uh, having gone from Australia, which is also a different world, 
um, where drinking is a, 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 a heavy part of uh, pe people's lives out there. And Mr. Jones had uh, backed me up on that one. And, and it's, it's pretty much a, a Wild West sort of environment out there, um, or it was back then. And to have the cultural shock of actually going to Japan after that, where everybody bows and they're very polite and, and everything. It was just, uh, we, we went from Australian wintertime, which is not that bad, but into extreme heat in uh, Japan in August. And it was just, well, Steve will tell you, it was just, I don't know, you could have been on a different planet and, you, and your body's not ready for that dramatic change. Um, and just culturally, it's such a different place. And uh, I just felt like a complete heathen there, to be honest. Um, yeah, it was um, quite a dramatic experience. Does that explain the sailor suits? Uh, I wasn't wearing a sailor suit, was I? There was sailor suits involved, wouldn't they? I've seen the photographs. <laughs> kimonos, I think. Oh, yeah. So kimonos, kimonos, perhaps. Well, but they have courtesy of the hotel and that sort of thing. Where everybody has to do a lot of bowing and scraping and stuff. But, um, yeah, so fortunately, our Japanese friends are not here to join us this time around uh, because of the uh, COVID restrictions that they've still got in place over there. Because they're a very loving and devoted type of people, they're, they're fantastic people. And Stephen's been over there, I mean, he fell in love with the place and he spends a lot of time over there. Well, sort of pre-COVID type of thing, you know. So he's probably more able to answer these things than I am, to be honest. Over to our Japanese correspondent. <laughs> so over to our Japanese correspondent. I'll just plug my book out now, for people who've got it. If you look in the book itself, there's uh, about 10 or 11 pictures of the Inkomonos in Tokyo. The, the guy was, was a guy all um, hired to take pictures of them, XTC. And we had this wonderful Hasselblad camera, which is worth about 15 grand at the time, like an And I had a, a thing called the Casino CSM, that cost me 80 quid. And the, the Hasselblad wouldn't work. So I had to take all the pictures of what you see in the book, and then they would use those as the press shots, like an owner. Also, I took some pictures of Terry. In the drum factory in Tamer, when we went to the drum, drum factory. Show some naked pictures of Tamer. So, if you look into the book, you can see the Japanese part of the tour. The book got Australia, Japan, USA. Um, we flew back to um, Britain to do the um, the Manor documentary for three days. There's pictures in there with Richard Branson. And then we went back and did the tour with the police. We went to Biarritz and um, um, Barcelona and then in the ball ring, I think it was, yeah, yeah. So Japan was amazing now. The, the Japanese still love XTC like you won't believe. And the, when we took Tin Spirits there, uh, 2019, I think it was, we did two nights in Tokyo with Dave Gregory. And they, they were going deranged in the front, I mean, absolutely deranged. And it's, just, it's going to be like that for Terry, I imagine. It's going to be really, really good. And uh, I can't wait to see it. Hopefully, I can go. If, if the COVID restrictions let me in, I'm hoping to go on the, on, the, on the tour. The only way I can get in at the moment is if I go as a backing singer. So uh, I'll, have to, it has I'll, to be, has I'll have to get the tutu skirt out in there. Uh, thank you. I wanted to ask you or the text about that tour uh, in 82 that got canceled. Before that, when you were getting ready for that, or 
those first those two weeks that did happen could you sense was there anything going on i mean was it even at the start was it like did it feel different than getting ready for another tour because you know andy told us about the changes he went through were you aware to where that maybe affected anything in the whole process up to that where the cancellation finally happened from my point of view i was unaware of that i know andy um he was suffering from a lot of um, a bit of fatigue, I think, when we were in the European thing. I think in Paris there was signs that, um, you know, he probably needed a rest. But we were sort of committed to this American thing there because these things, in order to do these things, they have to be put in place well in advance. So, um, and you can't sort of predict illness or anything like that coming along the way. We had very unsympathetic management that sort of basically flogged Partridge in particular like a racehorse, you know, and he was just fit for the knacker's yard at the end of it because the guy just needed a rest, really, but we had unsympathetic management. It was one of those things that um, strike while the iron's hot. Um, you, you never know, this could all collapse. The next album could be a complete disaster, and it was a question of sort of just keeping it rolling for as long as it could go because we didn't have... And no band can have any idea of how how long these things are going to last. So I, I think it's synonymous with not only XTC, most bands, I think Alan probably know more bands than I do, but it uh, seems to me that um, good bands and bands that sustain a long career have good management. By that I mean they, they manage to manage people rather than sort of making perhaps good uh, business decisions, but also realise that um, you know the, the guys in the band are human as well. I mean, we've only got to look at the unfortunate incident with Taylor Hawkins in in recent times of a guy that's only 50 years of age. I mean, John Bottom springs to mind as well, only 32 when he died. The workload that that, that that's involved with this type of thing now. Taylor Hawkins was only 50. I say only 50, but when you're playing the sort of music that the Foo Fighters do, uh, which is pretty frenetic stuff, which is great, and, and we also did similar stuff to that, I guess, in a sense, when you're 20, 21, Alan Jones would be able to tell you that, uh, all the early stuff that we were doing, it was all 100 miles an hour. Now, I don't play any of that stuff now, because I'm 67, and it's, it's impossible to do that. Yeah, I can do most of the stuff we do now. We do a two hour, two one hour sets with a fifteen minute break in between it. But it's it's paced so that at my age I'm still capable of doing them. Well, arguably, <laughs> that's for you to decide. But uh, a reasonable job of what you do. But you couldn't play stuff like Science Friction, for example, if anybody's aware of that song and Neon Shuffle and some of the other frenetic stuff from the early days. Now, going back to the Taylor Hawkins situation, he's in a band where he has to play those songs, you know, because they are the big Foo Fighters hits. And to be able to do those two things at that pace, that energy, and one thing or another at 50, you know, it seems to me that you need some enhancement. It's unfortunate that um, I, I, I think that that's that's the way things go there, and um, that's that's just that's my opinion.
if that answers the question, I'm not sure. And, and uh, Alan, most of your stories and anecdotes seem to finish about six o'clock in the morning, so it was, it was <laughs> you were living, <laughs> fighting hard, weren't you? Playing hard. Yeah, I mean, when you're on tour, these, these things sort of happen. Uh, but just to pick up a, a, on a point that Terry said about management, I mean, that, that is really crucial. Uh, I mean, all the groups that I used to hang out with in those days, I think the majority of them had really good managers, like, you know, Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe had Jake Riviera and the Field Guns. You guy too from, have got one of the best managers yeah, out. I mean, and, and they sustain as a band. Yeah, right, and so it is crucial, and, it, and it, it's often um, that... We say with Jake and Elvis and Nick Lowe, they, they, Jake and El, uh, Nick had known each other for years, so they were friends. They be fra- became friends with Costello. Um, I only met Ian. Is it Ian? Ian Reed, yeah. Reed. Is Ian Reed with a G? And <laughs> the first time I met him, I couldn't believe that he was the group's manager. He had this kind of blazer on with little, you know, gold buttons with anchors on them or something. Always <laughs> <laughs> had a briefcase. Yeah. I mean, later, I mean, the, it, it was like Ian Fade from Spinal Tap, you know. <laughs> and I thought, this guy is not really working for the, for the group. I think, did he, did he go to Venezuela? Uh, I, I, I seem to remember him at the remember bar of the hotel uh, there. And just like, oh, this guy doesn't money. know yeah. nothing at all. Absolutely nothing at all. And then later, you know, reading about, uh, you know, the contracts he'd had the band sign and his relations with Virgin, I mean, just supported all my worst suspicions about how unqualified he was uh-huh. to be the manager of anything, let alone a fucking group. Just speaking of um, that, con- sorry about that. Just speaking about the contract that uh, was signed, um, I, I suppose I should share the story with you that when when we actually signed our deal with Virgin Records, um, we were in a, a guy called Stephen Fisher's office, which um, he he was um, a solicitor that. Um, worked for people like Malcolm McLaren and he, he dealt with the Sex Pistols amongst many others. So he was the head, I guess, musical solicitor in London. And uh, he was representing Ian Reid in conjunction with Virgin Records. And we, the four members of XTC, uh, Partridge, Maldon and uh, Barry Andrews and myself, um, we had a local guy from Swindon who was a, a real estate solicitor. <laughs> I mean, it was sort of like a David and Goliath sort of situation when you go there. He was completely out of his depth air bloke and uh, he, he didn't know one end of the contract from the other. Anyway, during the pro- process of signing these things, Dennis Deveridge, that um, was Ian Reid's eyes and ears when it came to music, because Reid had... Reed run a nightclub in, in Swindon. He, he knew nothing about music. He, had, he couldn't dance, he couldn't do anything. He, had, he, had no, he didn't have a musical fibre in his body. I can't dance either, to be honest. But, um, uh, anyway, going back to Reed, when we were in this office, Dennis Detheridge, who um, he, he, he was a journalist up in the Birmingham region back in the 60s and one thing or another, Brumby, I think it was called, Alan, you would be aware of that. And he was uh, back in the time of um, 
uh, Jeff Lynne, The Move, The Moody Blues, Black Sabbath, or before they were even Black Sabbath, and, and, and the Bev Bevan, and, and people like that. He knew all these people in, in, in the Birmingham thing. So, and Reed came originally from, from that, um, he had a club up there as well, and this is where he got connected with Deathridge. Anyway, but they bore you too much. Reed had Deathridge there as, as his musical guru, I guess. So Deathridge is there with him in this office, and he, he took a turn uh, while we were doing this, and, um, you know, it looked like some sort of heart attack or something. I mean, we didn't know what the hell was going on. Anyway, Deathridge, God rest his soul, ended up on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it sounds funny now. I mean, I, I dare say Dennis is dead now. I would imagine. <laughs> well, he, he, he survived this particular occasion anyway. But um, Deathridge is on the floor, and, uh, and um, Stephen Fisher says maybe we should put some under his head. So he grabs Reed's briefcase. That it was sort of like part of his body. It was like another. It was like another appendage. This, this briefcase that he had. So. Fisher takes this briefcase out and somebody lifts Deatheridge's head up, shoves this briefcase under Deatheridge's head to try and make him more comfortable while somebody phoned for an ambulance. And um, anyway, Reed's sort of there and he sort of steps back over, steps back over Deatheridge from one thing or another and then continues the negotiations uh, with his solicitor. I mean, Mr. George had no idea. I mean, he just couldn't believe what was going on. And the rest of us, we thought, well, we thought Deather was going to die. <laughs> and um, anyway, the, the conversation went on there, and wheeling and dealings were taking place there. And anyway, it came to a point there where Reed needed another uh, piece of paper out of this briefcase. <laughs> Deather is out there, almost dead. I mean. <laughs> and, yeah, it sounds funny. I mean, we shouldn't laugh at this sort of thing. Well, actually, you know, I mean, nobody performs CPR. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is back in the day when nobody knew anything about CPR. You know, people just sort of went down there and they died. And, uh, anyway, Reed wanted something out of this briefcase. There was something in there. And, the fact that Deathridge was down there dying at the time wasn't going to stop him from getting this stuff out. So he sort of lifts Deathridge's head up, pulls the briefcase out, Deathridge's head goes clunk on the floor. And I mean, you know, but that was either going to breathe life into him or something like that. And Reed, Reed took this, these documents out of the thing there and continued on with the thing. And uh, next thing we know, the, there was... It was up a couple of stories or something, this, this building that we were in. Um, and eventually the ambulance guys come in and they take Deathridge away. But um, Reed didn't show very much compassion for Deathridge because I, I think Reed looked at him and thought he was a spent force. So, <laughs> so, so I think it's all achieved basically. Deathridge's time was up for Reed, I think. <laughs> you know, it was like. Well, that's it. You've got me here now. We're signing these documents, and okay, if you've died in the event, so be it. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's a true story. <laughs> so.
stories like that are one of the reasons that they're so great to go on the road. Yeah, tickets are on sale for Terry's stand-up tour um, on the way out. Um, we're very, very close we'll to... take over from the two Ronnies. There's a, there's a spot there to be filled. <laughs> we're very close to... I'll the, sit in that really big chair. To, ...to finish, because um, um, we've got lots of exciting events uh, on the calendar for us this evening, and it has to be all set up, so uh, we're in the final ten minutes, which means that there's still just a time for a little question or two. There's one right at the back. Can you get that far? I'll try to get to the back and then I'll come to the front here. So we just we'll be way through. Can I just say, was the Blackpool gig at Tiffany's? Because I saw that on a poster. The, the one with Blondie? It didn't, yeah. it didn't have Blondie on it. It was just XTC. Uh, it said yeah, Tiffany's I think, Blackpool. Yeah, I think when we played there with Blondie, I think it was either Tiffany's or the Locarno, I think, oh. as, I, as I recall it. But, okay. um, Thank you. Any reason for that? Anybody from Blackpool here? <laughs> okay, the I was there. <laughs> Are you from Blackpool? No, I'm from Bolton, but we, we made the trip. Is there anybody from Blackpool here? No. So you were one of the 150? Uh, well, I, rem- I remember, I didn't remember Blondie being on the bill. I think it was just XTC. It was Tiffany. Yeah, and if they were on the bill, and we supported them. And, um, and, and there were no way there were 150 there when we were there. But, <laughs> Going back to what you were saying about going and putting on a show, it's one of the best gigs I've ever been to because you really felt... You obviously it. weren't there last night. Thank you. So, sorry, let's get the one back. Okay. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Terry, when, when the band stopped touring, and obviously you, you wanted something new, could you look at any British bands that were doing to play for anyone else locally for a bit? Yeah, when I when I sort of finished with XTC from the touring point of view, I think it's pretty well documented the reasons why that took place. Um, Reed of all people, going back to him again, rang me up within about two days of that and said that uh, China Crisis were looking for a drummer, and um, that position was available. But I I wasn't in the right frame of mind to be playing with another band in the UK because. I was on my way to Australia at that point. And um, I think they ended up with a guy called Kevin Wilk, uh, Kevin Wilkinson, I think it was, that also played with John um, John Perkins, that was a keyboard player in our band. I think Kevin ended up getting the job because they, for some reason, they wanted a drummer from Swindon. God knows why. <laughs> but I, I, I think he ended up playing with them. Thank you. Maybe one more question now at the front, and then I'll have to wind it up. Uh, can I ask a question about EXTC? You can? Yeah. I just wanted to say, well, as a fan, it's really exciting to hear you play songs off albums that you weren't even a part of. Um, do, they, do those songs feel as part yours as the others, or how, how has that been as an experience? Well, uh, mainly, um, I mean, they're big shoes to fill, because all those guys that played on any of those records after I've moved on, I mean, as you see, he paid a lot of money for those guys, you know. I mean, Dave Maddox strikes me as, I think he got 10 grand up front just to do the thing there and one thing another. So, I mean, it cost them a lot of money. Um, I was certainly working a lot cheaper than that. <laughs> and, um, but all those guys were fantastic drummers. I mean, um, I guess they, uh, you know, they, they didn't want to sort of take a step back, they wanted to take a step forward. So they probably played those things. I don't know. I mean, were you there last night? Yeah. Well, I mean, I can only 
ask you what you think. I mean, I just did my interpretation of what I would do, roughly based on, on the original stuff there. But some of those guys, I mean, I can't play a shuffle to save my life. But, because um, I'm not that type of drummer. I mean, I, I appreciate those that do. Mattox and, uh, and, and guys like that, they're very good at that type of thing. I mean, it's not really my thing. I'm, I'm no sort of jazz player or anything like that. Um, I'm more sort of like what I would describe as a meat and potatoes sort of chap. And I can only put my interpretation of what I would do on it. Hopefully it's reasonably representative of the original thing there without going too far away from it. But I like to try and give it a little bit of balls for the want of a better expression. So, yeah, and it certainly did, it was a fantastic gig last night, so thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, thank you uh, to Pete Dewhurst for being here, but also for inviting Terry, that if you think this gig was last minute, Terry's presence on this stage is even more last minute than that, so it was arranged this afternoon. So tri triple thanks for Terry to giving us such fun, A, turning up at, at such low, uh, late notice, and B, uh, giving such fantastic um, anecdotes and, and stories from the past. And then um, equally a massive thank you to uh, Alan Jones for his reminiscences from the battlefield of pop. Thank you very much, everybody. What do you call that noise? Thank you so, so, so much to Terry Chambers, Alan Jones, Pete Dewhurst, and Steve Warren for that fantastic chat. Thanks too to Mike Smith and the other convention organizers for setting it all up. And thank you once again to everyone who has supported the podcast on Patreon. And you can join them at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Thanks in particular to the following Nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Kevin Burt, Lorenzo Chachi, Kale Corbett, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Jeff Farris, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Alan Hughes, Marek Kraus, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlor, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Murray Meikle, Yusuf Murrah, Karen Neal, Amy Parkinson, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller, and Martin Whitley. Great to have you all on board. I'll be back with you again next time for more XTC fun and games. See you then. Bye.